Hi, my name is Kate, and I am the Director of Middle School Ministry at the Wilmington campus, and I'm here today to answer some Google questions about God. So number one, is God angry when it thunders? So I, before I went into ministry, I wanted to go into meteorology. So I know a lot about thunder, and I know that it's the sound that comes after lightning. So I'm not really sure that God is angry. It's really just the sound of lightning. Number two, is God sending me a message? Well, um, I haven't checked my phone in a couple of days. Um, so I'm not really sure if God's sending me a message, but he might be. Maybe check your email, check your text messages. Number three, is God interested in who wins the Super Bowl? This year, God does not care at all who's in the Super Bowl because the greatest team in NFL history, the Philadelphia Eagles, is not in the Super Bowl. So, no, God does not care. Number four, is God friended me a show on Hulu? Um, maybe. I'm pretty sure this show is about God and becoming friends with people on Facebook. I've never actually seen the show. Um, and Hulu tends to have all of the shows. So I would say probably. And finally, is God angry, sexist, and racist? That is a great question. I feel like I'm not qualified to answer that question. So I'm gonna turn it over to Pastor Brian this week. Well, of all the questions we have tackled in this series, this one may be the most uncomfortable. Is God angry, sexist, racist? Asking that question about God almost sounds like we're accusing God of being those things. And for some of us, that's probably feeling a little bit irreverent, maybe even blasphemous. But then again, others may be saying, I didn't know you could ask that question in church, but I'm glad someone did. And then others might be saying, yeah, it's about time someone called God out on that stuff. These questions have been raised and popularized in recent days by the so-called New Atheist Movement. And one of the leading spokespersons for that movement, Richard Dawkins, puts it rather bluntly. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. A petty, vindictive, bloodthirsty, misogynistic, racist, genocidal, capriciously malevolent bully. That's the PG version of his quote. Now, it may sound over the top to us, but the fact that his book and others like it have become bestsellers suggests that he has struck a nerve with this line of questioning. Many Google searches about God wrestle with these kinds of questions. People trying to reconcile the, the mean God of the Old Testament with the nice God of the New Testament. Trying to reconcile the supposed love of God with the sometimes troubling actions of God. Now, these are important questions to ask and answer. Not only to remove stumbling blocks for people who are on their way to faith, but even for those who already believe to to speak to some of the questions that we still have. 
and to give us confidence again in the God we worship and in the Bible that we depend upon. So I want to say from the outset, we have nothing to fear from these questions. They're valid questions and there are reasons that we ask them. But there are equally valid reasons and answers to these questions. Answers that not only give us confidence again in God and in the Bible, but actually inspire us perhaps to trust and follow him even more. So with that in mind, we're going to dive in. Now we could obviously do a whole sermon on each of these three. We won't take time to do that. So I'm going to simply offer a sample of responses to each. And, and along the way, I'd like to be sharing some broader principles for handling these and any tough texts in Scripture so that we're equipped to do this on our own. Now I'm going to reverse the order just a little bit to get a more logical flow and we'll, the case will kind of build as we go. And if you hang with me, we'll finish with a cool diagram and a fun illustration. Okay? So hang with me. Let's begin with the opening question, is God angry? Now, people who ask this question will point to some of the descriptions we find of God in the Old Testament, in particular, in which he appears to be harsh, mean, vengeful, and even violent in his treatment of people and of nations. We think of some of the severe penalties in the Mosaic Law the death penalty for adultery or heresy or sorcery. The story of Uzzah reaching out to steady the ark when it was about to fall and being struck dead on the spot. We think about the bloodshed that we encounter, especially in the Old Testament, and, and, and what appear to be commands to totally destroy or wipe out a people or a nation. How do we handle these instances. Is God angry? Well, the first part of the answer to that question is yes, sometimes. Sometimes God is angry. But he's angry about the right things. He's angry about things he should be angry about. Things that we would hope a good God would be angry about. Things like injustice and oppression and the exploitation of, of, of women and children and the poor and the disadvantaged. Things like the taking of human lives. I mean, don't we get angry about those things? Don't we get angry about child abuse and, and mass shootings and human trafficking and racial injustice? By the way, if you're not feeling angry about racial injustice, go see the film Just Mercy, which was just recently. And, and you'll be angry about the right things to be angry about. We should be angry about some of these things. We should try to stop them. We should try to restrain them. We try to protect people from them. Anger and love are not incompatible. When we love someone, we want to protect them and our relationship with them. And so, yes, sometimes God is angry, but he's angry about the right things, things that do harm to people and the world that he's made. But is he angry in the right ways? That's what people are really asking here. Is his anger over the top, severe, harsh, violent? And let's focus on that last one because I think that's really the nub of this question. Is God violent? And if you've read much of the Old Testament, you can understand why people might ask that question. There are some troubling passages there. 
So before we look at one or two, let me give you the first of a handful of principles for handling difficult texts. The first one is this. Consider the historical cultural context. In other words, in order to understand someone, you need to understand the world in which they live and even the language they speak. So the first thing we need to understand about the ancient world is how violent it was. It was a brutal environment, a constant struggle for survival and superiority. Might made right, the strong survived, the good died young, nice guys finished last. That's the kind of world it was. And so when it came to interpersonal conflicts, disputes between people, There were no law enforcement agencies to offer protection and restraint. There were no elaborate court systems to to settle disputes and to protect the innocent. Disputes were settled swiftly, impulsively, often with malice. And so the penalties that are called for here in the Mosaic Law, which appear to us to be a little bit severe and harsh, were actually a vast improvement over the customs of the times. For instance, people often point to the command we find in the Scripture, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, as being brutal and barbaric. Well, the first thing we should know is that command actually originated in the Code of Hammurabi. Before the Scriptures, the Bible merely quotes it. The second thing we should understand is that an eye for an eye is a whole lot better than two eyes for an eye or a head for an eye, which is often how things worked in the ancient world. A third thing we'd want to understand is that it was probably never meant to be taken literally. It was a pithy, proverbial way of saying that the punishment should fit the crime and of preventing evil or violence from escalating. When it came to national and international politics and conflict, again, it was a brutal environment. If you didn't wipe them out, they would try to wipe you out. Warfare has always been brutal. It was in the ancient world and it is in the contemporary world. And if we're troubled sometimes by the number of casualties we read about in Old Testament stories, You don't want to know about the number of casualties, civilian casualties, in modern warfare. Even wars that we have had to wage, sometimes for just reasons. So warfare is deadly. But but how about when we're told that, that, that God commanded the Israelites to utterly destroy a city? I mean, that sounds horrible. How do we understand those passages? Well, again, some of the history and culture will help us to understand it. First of all, we have to understand that the cities we read about in the Old Testament were not population centers like Boston or New York, where great numbers of people lived and worked and shopped. In the ancient world, people lived in villages. They lived and worked and shopped near their fields, away from the cities. The cities were generally military outposts. They were forts. In fact, the Hebrew, the common Hebrew word for city is used interchangeably to describe a fortress. Let's take the city of Jericho, which uh, we're told was totally destroyed by the Israelites, which sounds pretty awful. Well, scholars tell us that the city of Jericho was about six acres in size. 
and probably housed a few hundred soldiers. The only civilian we know of in Jericho was Rahab, who ran a brothel, which is a common feature in a military outpost. What's more interesting is that the lone civilian we find in the city of Jericho was spared from the destruction along with her family. Another cultural factor to keep in mind is the frequent use of hyperbole in ancient accounts of warfare. Historians tell us it was very common in the ancient world for leaders and nations to greatly exaggerate the size of their armies or the scope of their victories. Historians will tell us it was an ancient form of trash talk that we're familiar with from the world of sports. The kind of thing you might hear two WWE wrestlers hurling at each other before a match. Hulk Hogan looking at an opponent and saying, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Hopefully he's not literally going to do that. There are multiple accounts in Babylonian literature, Assyrian literature, and even in the Bible of cities being totally destroyed or of of killing every man, woman, and child. Those things never actually happened. In fact, in in many accounts, the, the people that we read were totally destroyed in one chapter end up showing up in the next chapter. It's it's ancient trash talk and saber rattling. One scholar puts it this way. We must recognize that the language of warfare had a conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric often exceeded reality on the ground. This is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. Now we could cite many more examples, but you get the basic idea. When we understand the historical, cultural world in which which they lived, when we understand the use of language, the stories that we read here aren't nearly as troubling as they seem to be at first reading. When God is angry, He's angry about the right things. And when he or his people act to restrain that evil, their actions are restrained and appropriate to to the situation and to the times in which they lived. But before we leave this question, let me offer a second principle for handling tough passages. The first was to consider the historical cultural context. The second is to consider the timeless truths of scripture. We never want to base our understanding of God's character or ways on one or two isolated, difficult texts we find in scripture. A basic rule of Bible interpretation is that you always interpret difficult texts in light of clear texts. You interpret isolated texts in light of repeated texts. And you interpret narrative story texts in light of declarative propositional texts. So, for instance, one of the most clear, most repeated, most declarative statements in Scripture is that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Six times that entire statement is made in the Scripture, Old Testament and New slow to anger. 
whenever God does express his anger, it is only after many years and often many generations of patience and warning and forgiveness and second chances. For instance, God gave the Egyptians 400 years to let God's people go. And it wasn't until after all that time had passed and all those warnings that finally God sent the plagues that gradually nudged them to finally let those people go. So whenever we come to a troubling text in the scripture like this, we always want to interpret it in light of the larger, clear, declarative statements of scripture like God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That's question number one. Let's, let's move ahead now to the second part of this question. Is God racist? Does he favor some people groups and show prejudice or malice towards other people groups? I mean, that's a harsh accusation. Why would someone even raise that kind of charge about God? Well, for one thing, there is the church's history of support for institutional race-based slavery, including the use of the Bible to support that institution. And secondly, we find in the Bible God's apparent preference for the nation of Israel and his apparent harsh treatment of some of their enemies like the Canaanites. So, How do we respond to this question, to this charge, is God racist? Well, we begin at the beginning with creation itself, where we're told that God created one race of beings, human beings, made in his image, such that every human being that descended from those first human beings, every group and people and nation of them, all alike and equally bear the image of God, every human. We come to Genesis 12 and God chooses a couple, Abraham and Sarah, through whom he will raise up one nation, to Israel, to carry out his purposes in the world. But it's clear from the beginning that God's purpose is to bless Israel in order to bless the entire world. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that promise, that purpose is affirmed again and again throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament, God commands his people Israel to show kindness and compassion to foreigners and sojourners and aliens. He reminds his people to to provide welcome to those who come into one of their cities seeking refuge. He forgives Israel's arch enemy, Assyria, when they repent after the preaching of Jonah. The prophets remind the people again and again of God's loving purposes for the whole world. Isaiah says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, the nations, so that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. We get to the New Testament and we find the genealogies of Jesus include men and women from other people groups and nations. We find Jesus repeatedly reaching out to Samaritans and to Gentiles. And when Peter and the early church have a hard time opening their arms up to all people, God gives them a vision from heaven 
And Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. By the time we get to the book of Revelation, the end of the story, we read that people from every tribe and language and people and nation worshiping God together and ruling over a new heaven and new earth. From beginning to end, the Bible declares God's love, welcome, and purpose for all people everywhere. Well, then, then, then what about his treatment of people like the Canaanites, what, what some people would call a genocide? Is it true that God wiped out an entire people group so that his people, Israel, could have their land? No, it's not true. That's not at all what happened. And when you understand the historical context, it begins to make some more sense. First of all, God's problem with the Canaanites wasn't that they were Canaanites. It's that they were wicked. They were a cruel, violent, tyrannical people that inflicted havoc and harm on people everywhere, including systemic child sacrifice, including institutionalized exploitation of women. They had ample opportunity to repent, to change their ways, but they refused. They continued to inflict their evil on the world. Secondly, This was not the case of a powerful nation overpowering a weaker nation and taking their land. This was the case of a a weak nation, a, a nation of farmers and nomads actually reclaiming land that was rightfully theirs. And thirdly, the Canaanites were not wiped out, they were driven out. That's the language the Bible uses most often to describe what happened there, driven out. It's the same language used to describe what happened to the Israelites when the Egyptians drove them out of Egypt. They they weren't destroyed, they were expelled. The few times we read about total destruction of the Canaanites are clearly these hyperbolic, exaggerated references that are common in ancient military warfare. Because the truth is the Canaanites continued to live in the land and outside the land even after Israel inhabited it. God is not a genocidal maniac. He is not prejudiced toward any people group but loves all people everywhere equally. Yeah, but what about slavery? How do we explain the Bible's apparent tolerance for slavery and the church's historical use of the Bible to support slavery? Well, it is true that the Bible acknowledges the reality of slavery and speaks into that reality, but that's not the same as endorsing or condoning that reality. The Bible never endorses polygamy, but it happened, and so the Bible speaks about it. Several of the historical, cultural things can help us understand what's happening here. Understand, first of all, that the slavery we read about in the ancient world was not the institutional race-based slavery that we're familiar with in the modern world and even in our own nation's history, which is, in fact, an abomination to God. Slavery in the ancient world was certainly a repressive economic structure but it also provided a living and work and housing 
for, for millions and millions of people. And it often came with opportunities to, to own property, to earn wages, to advance, to be promoted, and ultimately to gain and purchase one's freedom. Second thing we need to understand is that when the Bible does speak into this reality of slavery, it does so in ways that promote their dignity and, and, and fairness. Slaves were to enjoy the Sabbath day just like the Israelites were. There were legal protections around them when they got into trouble. The practice of kidnapping people and turning them into slaves, that was clearly forbidden. Runaway slaves were to be treated with mercy, unlike the Code of Hammurabi, which called for them to be executed. It was expected in the ancient world and in Israel that these slaves would eventually either purchase their freedom or be granted their freedom in the seventh year or the year of Jubilee. When we come to the New Testament, Paul speaks redemptively into this reality of slavery, breathing respect and dignity and kindness into the equation. In his first letter to Timothy, he condemns slave trading. People will sometimes say the Bible never condemns slavery. Yes, it does. First Timothy chapter one, Paul condemns slave trading as, as contrary to the gospel of God and to sound doctrine. And in Galatians, he lays down one of those timeless truths, an explosive truth that would eventually inspire the abolition of slavery in the Western world. In the book of Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when it comes to this charge of racism, both of these principles we're learning help us understand what's happening here the historical cultural setting, the timeless truths of scripture, but there's a third one that helps. And I'm gonna call it, consider the redemptive movement of scripture, the redemptive movement. We've talked, out the, talked about this before, how, how God gradually reveals more and more of himself and his ways as we move through the Bible and as we move through human history. God meets humanity where we are. In the ancient world, he meets humanity at a very primitive place, a barbaric moment. And he begins moving them in better and better directions. And he continues to move them all through scripture and through human history. Over time, he reveals more and more of his justice and his compassion and his righteousness in ever-increasing measure. Slaves and foreigners are better off in Deuteronomy than they are in Exodus. They're better off in the New Testament than they were in the Old Testament. And they're better off in the contemporary world than they were some hundred years ago before we understood and applied fully the truths that we find in Scripture. Racism is evil in all of its forms. But don't pin it on God. It's human beings who bear responsibility for racism and for slavery. We need to repent of it continually. The church needs to repent of it. We need to renounce it. We need to, to resist it. We need to overcome it in keeping with the ultimate purposes of God and his love for all people. Everybody okay out there? <laughs> Take a breath, all right? Let's move to the third aspect of this question. Is God sexist? In particular, is God repressive and demeaning 
in his treatment of and regard for women. Now again, you can't blame people for asking that question. If you read through the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments reflect a a strongly patriarchal view of human society and relationships. In the Bible, men are more prominent. They're more powerful. They're more advantaged. There are some disturbing stories of violence against women and the exploitation of women. Women are taught to to submit to their husbands, to be quiet in church. Their spheres and roles seem to be limited in comparison to men. And in addition to those biblical texts, we have a couple thousand years of Judeo-Christian history, which has often been repressive toward and limiting of women in terms of their roles and freedom. So how do we respond to this charge? Well, these principles we've been learning can help us here. Let's begin with the historical cultural context. As we said, the ancient world was was a patriarchal world. And so the biblical stories reflect that reality, speak into that reality without necessarily condoning that reality. Newspapers report violence against women today. Novelists write stories about the exploitation of women today, not to promote it, but because it happens, because it's the world in which we live, and we need to understand and respond to it. The violence and exploitation that we do read about in Scripture is renounced, and it's often punished in the moment. And when the Bible does speak into those social structures, it speaks redemptively, calling men and women to better things, to respect and dignity and humility and service and love. Even passages that seem regressive to us, when they're properly understood, were actually shockingly progressive for their times. And then we also want to consider the timeless truths of Scripture that speak into this question. Beginning in Genesis, where we're told that God created humanity, male and female, and that both of them individually and the two of them together reflected the image of God. It requires both genders, male and female, to fully express the image of God. There's no indication of hierarchy or superiority in Genesis 1 and 2 in the world that God originally made. Jump ahead to the New Testament. We find another timeless truth, the one we read earlier about the fact that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one and equal in Christ. And so these these timeless, clear truths have to govern our struggle with some of those difficult, isolated texts. And then let's consider the redemptive movement of Scripture. We find in the the Older Testament that roles are limited for women, especially early in the beginning, but as time goes by, we find women taking on more prominent roles. They become heroines. Miriam, Rahab, Ruth, Abigail, Deborah, Esther. We come to the New Testament and we find We find Jesus affirming women. We find leaders in the early church, Phoebe, Priscilla, Lydia, teaching and leading God's people. And so we have these three helpful principles, but there's a fourth one we're also discovering. Consider Jesus the embodiment of God. 
As helpful as this written word is in helping us know what God is like, we also need a living word, Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, in an earthly setting. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Now we'll talk about that more later in the series, but it's helpful right here because Jesus consistently treats women with respect and dignity and even honor. He breaks all the social and religious codes of the day by talking to them, teaching them, traveling with them, and ultimately trusting them with the most important news the world has ever heard. He is risen. So we can put to rest this charge that God is sexist and the Bible is repressive towards women. Now, unfortunately, the church, God's people, have not always been as affirming and empowering of women as our founder, Jesus, was. And so there's a need for continual repentance and reform as together we move towards God's intended purpose for humankind. So I promised you a diagram and an illustration, so we'll finish with these. This diagram is one that I shared last summer in a message, and many of you said you found it helpful, but it was summertime, so many of you might have missed it. So let me bring it back for a moment. I think it helps us to understand how to read the Bible and to wrestle with some of these tougher passages. It's a simple chart with a horizontal axis representing human history and the vertical axis axis representing God's purposes, God's will for humanity. Human history begins in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, where everything is as God intends it to be. Perfect harmony between God and humankind, between men and women, between humanity and the earth that God has given them. But right away, or soon, the fall happens, Genesis chapter 3. Human beings reject God's loving and good purposes, and everything is ruined. Now someday, looking to the end of the story, Revelation tells us the Bible ends with the image of a new heaven and a new earth with everything restored the way God intended it to be. In the meantime, God is working through human history and through human beings to redeem what was lost, to restore what is broken, gradually moving humanity in ever-increasing ways towards his good and eternal purposes for humankind. And there's this inflection point right around the time of Jesus that's a game changer for human history. And we see this redemptive movement at work in the three issues we're talking about today. First, in terms of violence. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was an improvement over much of the ancient cultures. But God never intended humanity to stay there. By the time we get to Jesus, he's talking about turning the other cheek and not returning evil for evil and loving your enemies. The same is true with this charge of slavery and racism. Slaves in Israel had it better than slaves in other nations, but God never intended for it to stay that way. By the time we get to the New Testament, Paul is breathing respect and dignity and justice into that institution. And in fact, pointing the way towards towards the ultimate dignity and freedom of all human beings. The same is true in regard to the charge of sexism. Women have certain protections and opportunities in the Older Testament, but not many. By the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus is affirming and empowering them to serve and lead his work in the world. 
Now, the biblical canon, the books of the Bible, we believe are closed. God's written revelation is complete. So I'm not suggesting that God is adding new truth or or changing things that we find in Scripture. I'm simply saying that as we understand and apply these truths in our current world, we are extending that trajectory towards God's ultimate will for humankind. It took us 1,800 years to figure out that race-based slavery, slavery itself was an abomination to God and to abolish it. It's only in the most, more recent century that we've been granting more freedom and opportunity and equality for women. Little by little, God is at work to shape the world according to his purposes through his people. And I find that incredibly helpful and hopeful. But I promised you a, a fun illustration, so thanks for hanging in there. So let's finish with this. I am unashamedly stealing it from another author. I came across a, a, a recent scholar on the scene, a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. She's written a book entitled Confronting Christianity. And she tackles some of these tough questions that we've been talking about very helpfully. In one of her chapters, she offers an illustration from the Harry Potter series. I don't know how you feel about the Harry Potter series. I have nothing against the series in particular. I'm not a huge fantasy fan, so I've kind of dipped in and out of it along the way. But I found this illustration incredibly helpful. Spoiler alert, okay? I'm assuming everybody who cares knows how the whole thing ends, but if you don't, you're going to now, all right? So... (laughs) One of the most mysterious characters in the saga is Severus Snape. Ah. We never quite know what to do with him along the way. Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Is he a double agent for the murderous Voldemort or for the good old Dumbledore? We're not quite sure. Somewhere along the way, partway through the story, a desperate Dumbledore reaches out to Snape asking for his help to save him. Instead of saving him, Snape kills him. Readers are horrified. Now we know Snape is evil through and through. But then we get to the final story in which we discover that Snape was actually making good on a pact that he and Dumbledore had a long time ago, that he was in fact rescuing Dumbledore from an even worse fate, and that he was setting in motion a chain of events that would lead to the ultimate defeat of Voldemort. But we didn't know until we got to the end of the story. However you may feel about Harry Potter, McLaughlin's point is this. Until we know the end of the story, there will be parts of the story we don't fully understand. Until we know the end of the story, there will be parts of the story we don't fully understand. And so when that comes to the Bible, while at times we may be confused and even troubled by things we read there, we won't fully understand God until we meet him in the end which sounds an awful lot like something the Apostle Paul said, another great writer in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now we see but a poor reflection. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 
And so let me finish with a fifth principle for handling tough passages of Scripture. Consider that there is more to the story. God's story is still being told. It's not over yet. There's much about God that we haven't seen yet, that we don't know, that we can't know in this present world and in our limited capacity. But based on what we do know, what has been revealed in the scripture and in Jesus and in our experience, I choose to trust God even when I don't fully understand. And to believe that God is in fact gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that in the end, we may discover that he is even more of those things than we could ever have imagined. May it be so, Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in the dark about these things. Thank you for the scripture, which is so rich and profound and complex and ultimately satisfying. Thank you for Jesus, who embodies those truths in a life that never disappoints. Thank you for your spirit, who helps us process and understand and trust even when it's hard. Thank you for each other, for a community of faith in which we can ask and answer and wrestle with these questions. Thank you for being a God we can trust. Lord, life is not always good. The world is not always good. People are not always good. But you are always good. In fact, you are more than good. You are gracious. And so we trust you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.